0: This spring, a broadband engineer in the UK goes to work and gets spat on his face by an enraged person. The case is far from being the only one. Since March, those working on mobile infrastructure in the UK reported continuous attacks. But why would somebody be so mad at telecom workers? The story, as reported by Wired UK, starts in January in Belgium, where a local paper printed a baseless story linking 5G to the coronavirus. It was then picked up by Dutch anti-5G campaigners, traveled to English conspiracy theorists on Facebook, and was even shared by Woody Harrelson. The whole issue prompted the UK government to intervene and condemn the conspiracies as, so the I quote, rubbish. the 5G story is rubbish. complete and utter rubbish. It's nonsense. It's the worst kind of fake news. Any newsreader nowadays is familiar with at least one fake news story they saw online. But making the difference between retweeting a quote you thought was true and interfering with foreign elections is a whole different issue. To make this distinction and help me figure out all things false information online, I am joined from California by Renee DiResta. DiResta is a research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory, where she looks at false narratives on social media networks. She advises the US Congress, the State Department, and writes wonderful articles for the Atlantic. She is also the DIVE's first guest outside of Harvard, which makes this conversation all the more special.
1: So I'm at Stanford Internet Observatory, and we have a project called the Virality Project. And what we've been looking at with uh, with that is how coronavirus misinformation and sometimes disinformation uh, is spreading not only in the U.S., but also in uh, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, China, and, uh, gosh, uh, I think I just left one out and can't remember which it is, <laughs> but seven or eight different countries. Um, and they have a range of different types of governments, a range of different types of media ecosystems. And what we've really tried to do is look at both how official party narratives are kind of coming down the line. So what is the government saying? What are government influencers and kind of blue check, uh, politicians saying about coronavirus? versus what are the ordinary people who are just participating in the internet conversation who happen to live in those countries um, saying about coronavirus.
0: And here comes the crucial distinction between misinformation and disinformation. And what we've been looking at is
1: both misinformation, which just to to define the term, we use to mean information that's inadvertently wrong. So something where the intent of the person sharing it uh, is is generally altruistic, right? It's quite good. They want to inform their community. They want to help people um, develop more of a, uh, a sense of you know what's going on in the world. They want to provide the latest information to their
0: friends. An so, example of this is people who shared that drinking lots of water would help people not get COVID or cure COVID.
1: Versus disinformation, where you have the. Um, the intent to influence and the intent to deceive. So oftentimes when we're talking about disinformation in the context of coronavirus, you're talking about very organized groups of individuals or sometimes the government uh, that's working to spread a false narrative for some sort of, uh, you know, to, to fulfill some sort of motive. So one thing we've seen, just to use a specific example with China, is we see conspiracy theories that kind of pop up out of the more conspiratorial message boards and things like that on the Chinese internet uh, that then are picked up by influencers in government who put them out on Twitter and say things like, people are saying that uh, coronavirus was really engineered by the US government. Um, The US government really hasn't responded to these allegations, but our people are wondering what's going on. And so in that act, you see somebody who theoretically should know better Uh, go and take this sort of fodder and turn it into something that's much more of a, um, you know, give it oxygen, much more legitimacy, because now all of a sudden it's coming through a more official source.
0: Can you have those two combined, sort of somebody sharing something, not necessarily with a bad intent, but somebody else finding that it goes um, well with their agenda? So they just offer a platform to this kind of, um, to, to that kind of false information?
1: Yes, and so one of the things that we've seen oftentimes, and this is not just unique to coronavirus, um, is that we'll see a legitimate political point of view or we'll see something that's uh, inadvertently wrong, kind of like a fog of protest moment maybe where nobody really knows exactly what happened in that moment. And you'll see some people who are sharing it again because of this altruistic intent. They wanna just inform their community. They sincerely believe the thing that they're saying. And then you'll see uh, something like a state media source will pick it up and will amplify it. And that's how it will begin to reach uh, larger audiences. And then it will be reframed with sort of a just asking questions angle. Um, so there's always, a, you know, oftentimes there's kind of a grain of truth. When we talk about disinformation, it's not always falsifiable. It's not something where you can say this is quite clearly not true. Um, sometimes it's a matter of interpretation. Sometimes it's a matter of uh You know, it's more of an issue of of propaganda as opposed to blatant false information.
0: So how does this pandemic change things? Coronavirus has been interesting because it's really brought forth the fact that oftentimes
1: with this particular disease, there is falsifiable, uh, you know, there are falsifiable claims. There are people who say this cure works, you know, colloidal silver cures coronavirus. You're saying that silver solution would be effective
0: totally eliminate it kills it and deactivate we know
1: that's not true but that's still out there spreading and then the question becomes to what extent does the person spreading that particular claim uh know whether it's whether it's true or not or are they someone who just heard it from someone else who's spreading it along um i think it's also very difficult in an environment where there's so much information and there's so many different stories going around for people to feel that they understand which story is true or which piece of information is true. And so they'll pick the one that uh, is most akin to the biases that they previously had or their view of the world um, most neatly. And so that too, that is not a Republican or democratic practice that is human nature and human psychology. And so one of the, uh, you know, there's always sort of a bit of arrogance where you think like, oh, that's those other people who uh, are making bad choices or, you know, are bringing the wrong information and so what's actually uh, happening is that uh, everybody is going through this process and trying to figure out which fact is something that they can trust, which voice is someone who is, you know, communicating good information to them. So, I mean, there are definitely times, you know, I'm a mom, I have kids, I have to figure out do I send them back to school and what information do I look to to decide whether to do that. There's very, very different views right now on whether or not you send your kids back to school and what will happen when kids go back to school. And I'm not a scientist, and so I'm I don't feel necessarily, um, you know, particularly well equipped to read every article in every journal or even know which is a preprint, which is <laughs> which is published, which is you know you have to do so much work yeah. because there's so much information. And we're also very much dependent on what's returned when we query for it. Right? When I search Google for latest coronavirus information on kids how does coronavirus affect infants etc etc uh i'm really very much at the mercy of like what does the search engine return how much sense can i make of that has that has that scientific article been digested by a newspaper reporter who maybe didn't understand it themselves that happens a lot uh and so you find yourself in a situation where you just want to know what you're supposed to do and it feels very, it feels almost impossible. Uh, yeah, and
0: you don't have months to spend on one question too. Exactly. An hour, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've done a lot of work in the anti-vaxxer movement and the conspiracy theories that um, surround that. I was just wondering, what is a realization that was the most striking to you and in, in the work that you've done that you had this like eye-opening moment? The
1: thing that originally surprised me the most, I think, was the extent to which social media companies, social media platforms were inadvertently amplifying that content. And I think one of the things that for a very long time, um, we didn't really have good data on, and if you don't have good data, it's hard to make the claim. And so we were saying things like, anecdotally, I see the recommendation engine pushing more and more extreme content at me since I've begun to like these anti-vaccine pages. So since I started following social media in a way that an anti-vax person would follow social media, my recommendation engines have cha- you know my recommendations have changed, and I see more and more conspiratorial content. I see more and more you know Pizzagate, QAnon. Um, that's the material that the recommendation engine is pushing at me. And that tells us something. One, it tells us there is some amount of overlap between those populations, between those conspiracy theories. And it also tells me that the recommendation engine is potentially reinforcing it. But we could never make the claim about um, how much, you know, how, how much is this happening? Is this anecdotal or is this a really big thing that's happening at scale? And think I think- the companies won't release that
0: information to you?
1: Right. Well, particularly back uh, prior to 2018, there was almost no data that was coming out. It began to change a little bit. Uh, you know, now there's um, CrowdTangle and a number of tools that are available to researchers to try to help us understand more quantitatively how often this is happening. Um, but it really felt like a, a bit of a missed opportunity. You know, we had this theory that this was happening very early on, um, but no way to make that claim plausible in a, in a, in a, um, in a rigorous sense. And I think a document leaked um, to the Wall Street Journal recently also saying that the platforms recognized, Facebook recognized that 64% of the people that were joining extremist, you know groups that are considered extreme, were doing so in response to recommendations, suggestions. So I think one of the things that surprised me is um, the extent to which we are seemingly unable um, to intervene in these moments. It's It's very much like a, you know, just kind of keep going along until it's too late. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. So the same groups that we saw in 2015 kind of uh, spreading health misinformation are the exact same groups that are doing it in 2020. But now they're doing it with a much broader network reach where anti-vaccine activists who have been referred to QAnon groups and, you know, Pizzagate groups and militia groups and a whole range of groups that distrust the government now have a much bigger um, kind of consortium of people who are politically aligned. And that means that they have much greater reach. And so now a lot of the things that we saw in 2015 that were smaller problems then are
0: now uh, massive issues. What I found really interesting is how you explain that in a pandemic, things become even worse when it comes to disinformation and misinformation. And it's not only because there's more conspiracy theories out there, but also because people are starved for updates and they're not getting them.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that's unique about a pandemic um, moment that we've never had before, really, uh, is that the entire world is paying attention to the same thing. And we've had outbreaks in the age of social media. I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at Zika uh, when that was happening in 2016. Um, That was sort of early on, you know, these conspiracy theories about Bill Gates, GMO mosquitoes, vaccines were prevalent during Zika. Ebola, again, the same thing, conspiracy theories about Bill Gates. Conspiracy theories about you know did the was this released by the government to call the population you know these sorts of various um, very similar conspiracies pop up each time, but what we have now, interestingly, in both the case of Zika and Ebola and measles also, um, you have the conspiracies that pop up, but most of the time there's a very well established body of scientific facts that goes along with the disease. So we know how to treat Ebola. We know how to treat measles. There are, of course, new treatments and new modalities coming out constantly. There's more research, et cetera. But ultimately, these are kind of known quantities. When um, when coronavirus happened, when COVID-19 began, the health authorities still, they didn't understand what was going on because this was a new emergent disease. So they didn't know the means of transmission yet. They understood it was respiratory, but there was all the debates about, was it airborne or not airborne? Um, to what extent, you know, how far apart from a person did you need to be, um, what impact would a mask actually have? So there were all of these things that were being kind of learned on the fly while at the same time, the world was searching for information. And so you had this unique dynamic where the health authorities themselves were not putting out very robust communications. They were quite reticent. They didn't, they weren't giving very regular updates. Um, the media was writing articles about how this was really just going to be a bad flu. Should I be panicked about the idea? No, there's clearly more cases. Let's say there are 5,000 in New York. Let's say reasonably, um, that doesn't got, get anywhere near the number of flu cases that you could be exposed to. And you are more likely to die of flu. You're as likely that we don't know the fatality rate yet fully from the coronavirus, but it's going to be around the flu. You're more likely to die of that. Um, you know, don't worry about coronavirus, worry about the flu, you know, so there were a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, unknowns and people trying to fill the space. So they would write an article, hydroxychloroquine, potential experimental drug. We have no idea if it's going to work or not, but all of a sudden there are dozens and dozens of articles about hydroxychloroquine before there's any actual medical or scientific evidence indicating whether or not it's effective.
0: I do want to ask you about hydroxychloroquine, the president was pushing it pretty strong again yesterday. You said uh, you have prescribed this. I want to talk to you about the effects you're seeing and what it might do for people who take it normally outside of coronavirus and a possible shortage of medicine for them.
1: Um, And so when an ordinary person goes and sits down at their computer and types in hydroxychloroquine, they find whatever has been created to kind of fill the void. And it's not always from reputable sources. Sometimes it's from grifters who want to sell you black market hydroxychloroquine, right? So since there is no kind of editorial gatekeeper, um, what you have instead is whatever kind of is the most popular on social media, whatever that thing that goes viral in trends is, or in a search engine, whatever kind of popular content is, uh, you know, fills the void. So when you type in that keyword, this is what comes back to you. And this means that the entire world, you know, in all languages, this is happening. And so you effectively have a, a situation where right at the moment when it's most important for people to have good information, accurate, reputable information to help them not take quack drugs, but also not put themselves and their or their families at risk. Um, we're very much at the mercy of curation and recommendation algorithms that are either pushing content or ranking content in a way that uh, perhaps is not what we would consider ideal.
0: And because good information takes time to validate especially in this case, it takes time and experiments and scientific lab work in order to to come up with an answer. What can governments do um, to fill the information gap I mean what can they say if if they don't necessarily have the have anything to say? yeah, it's a great question. I think that.
1: My inclination, and I am not a, um, (laughs) I feel like it's a question for a social scientist. Um, One of the things that, that I found myself wishing we did more of was um, communicated more transparently to the public. I think that that's really, you know, frequent updates, very transparent. And that's in part because the, you know, the internet is forever, right? People are going to go and they're going to, they're going to know that some, you know, that guidance changed in in a period of two weeks. And so, if you don't explain, if you don't acknowledge that your guidance has changed, right? We Two weeks ago, we said this, now with new information, we're changing our mind, here's why, right? And so it starts with an acknowledgement that something is different. Because right now, what happens is when the guidance changes, if there's no acknowledgement made of the fact that things are different, or even potentially completely opposite, um, what you get is this kind of second wave chorus of people who want to erode trust in the experts saying things like, well, they didn't know then. So why would you think that they know now? Right. Uh, Or, well, the media said this, and then the media didn't put out a a correction and a fact check. They just changed their story. So how can we trust the same media that was saying that coronavirus was a bad flu in February uh, when they're telling us this, this new information now? So making that process more of a norm more of a um yeah we, we changed our mind we've got new information and when you get new information yeah. you change your mind right and that is a normal thing to do and so turning that in that is an appropriate thing to do in fact that is what you should do and so making that i think a little bit more of a um of a clearer kind of communication process
0: I wanted to ask you because now, I mean, we've seen all the big tech uh, CEOs going to Capitol Hill being sort of questioned, especially on the issue of misinformation um, and disinformation and, 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 and this the, the whole information flows. Um, do you think Well, many questions on that. But do you think that that there should be a lot of focus in self-regulation? Because at least the European perspective leans more towards okay, this is why we have these public bodies for to regulate these companies. And we don't expect an entrepreneur to be amazing at their job and also very knowledgeable about public dilemmas and willing to act on them and et cetera, et cetera? It's a great question.
1: Um, I came out of Quant Finance, actually. That was one of my, my first kind of jobs when I got out of college was um, going to Wall Street. And it was at a time when high-frequency trading was really becoming prevalent in the markets, so around 2005 or so. And one of the things that was interesting to me was, you know, there were these um, moments where there would be an algorithm that would kind of go haywire right flash crash you know these sorts of um, things and the ability to you know maintaining integrity maintaining the trust of the public and the integrity of the financial markets is paramount to the system continuing to function if people don't trust the markets they don't trade and if people don't trust the information they see on the screen they don't trade and so one of the things that was very interesting to me was um, the sort of ways in which there were these tiers of regulators. There was the SEC up at the top that kind of came in and you know made major significant rule changes. Um, there was the uh, FINRA and the kind of broker-dealer associations that, that would all set their own rules. And then there were the exchanges. And I thought that that was a very interesting way to do it, where you had these three different systems. And there's different degrees of nimbleness in all of those, right? So um, something that has to be Passed or, you know, pass through a regulator is going to require a little bit more time. Uh, but an exchange can halt trading if there's a, indications that something has just kind of gone haywire. So the parallel there, <laughs> when we look at the information markets, um, is you have that, in, in my opinion, you have actually some very similar dynamics. You have, a, you have these social platforms. They all are slightly different. You know, they all have slightly different focuses or you're there for videos versus commentary or whatever else. Um, they all have the ability to, they have policy they're private platforms and so they can set policy and say this is something we're going to tolerate this is something we're not and they can make that change as quickly as they you know as, as quickly as they see fit um, then there is the you know the idea that I believe um, on the self-regulatory front a lot of times what you'll see from regulators is they'll latch on to a particular feature something that's been talked about um, in the media quite a bit. And in 2016, that was bots.
0: I mean, the uh, Russian trolls created thousands of bots to influence our democracy, our elections. They're doing it in other countries across the world. So in
1: 2015 and 2016, there was a lot of automated activity on social platforms that was very malicious, very manipulative. And it was absolutely undeniable at the time that this was going on and that, you know, anybody who could... Um, purchase a lot of accounts or rent a lot of accounts could get something trending and could therefore kind of capture attention or put out a particular perception that, um, you know, the entirety of America cared about a particular topic or felt a certain way about a particular topic. So they could manipulate the information market, if you will. They could manipulate what people saw, what people were talking about, what what was trending. And the response to that is not you know, what wound up happening was regulators decided that bots were a problem. And so over a period of two years, it took two years um, for and only California for California to pass a bill related to bots saying that, you know, bots needed to declare themselves.
0: This new law passed in the summer of last year, prohibits bots from pretending they're human. It's also important to add that California has the strictest privacy rules when it comes to internet um, in all of the U.S.
1: And by that point, Twitter, where the majority of this activity was happening, um, had already changed their ranking algorithm to downrank accounts that they determined were low quality. So automated accounts that were created yesterday that did nothing but try to get a hashtag trending fell under that low quality rubric and that, so by, do, by making that decision kind of in-house and dampening and throttling it, they effectively solved the problem um, without any need for, you know, two years later, this regulation came down the pipeline. So the time horizon of um, in, you know, what is an immediately manipulative tactic, that actually does have to be solved by the platforms. Um, not our, you know, our, our lawmakers who, most of whom are not technical, going to be able to regulate at a feature by feature level to handle like a burgeoning information more. That's an unrealistic expectation in my opinion. So where you want to see that, um, that kind of top level government regulation really is in ensuring that there's accountability overall, uh, that there are some, you know, that there is consequences if the, um, if the self-regulatory decisions don't get made. Do you see the industry wide thing uh, beginning to become more, Prevalent, there's the global internet forum to counter terrorism, where all of the tech platforms are members of the same consortium, looking at how do we design policies to minimize terrorist activity uh, on platforms. There are similarly things for child exploitation and uh, a range of other uh, areas where there's working with government, working with lawmakers on major social issues. And and you do see that kind of um, both regulatory effort and then also self-regulatory effort uh, and then, at the, again, at the bottom, just platform platform policy and these three tiers, you know, focusing on various facets of problems as they emerge.
0: And on the topic of regulation, you have mentioned how it's easy to shut down a Russian pretending to be an American, um, but when it comes from from an american spreading misinformation the situation gets much more difficult exactly well
1: so we've had now um four years and in the intervening you know in the intervening four years between 2016 and 2020 the platforms there you know there have been a number of investigations into um foreign influence and how foreign influence manifests not just russia We've seen now election interference and um, what's called coordinated inauthentic behavior is the term that was given to it, uh, in which state-sponsored actors insert themselves into conversations inauthentically by pretending to be members of a local population. Sometimes in this case, recently as recently as yesterday, uh, Facebook did a takedown where they were, uh, Russia, it was Russia again in this particular case, had hired local journalists uh, had hired unwitting Americans to begin to write for a uh, front media operation tied to the Internet Research Agency, uh, and again, when you search, if you Google the writer of that, the creator of that content, it's a real American who holds that aligned point of view. Who hold, you know, this was uh, targeting the left, so kind of uh, lefty people writing about um, those, you know, types of political beliefs and so these are real people and it makes it very very difficult to know um what to do in in those situations there are bright lines where we say this is an inauthentic account ergo that can come down this is a um malicious or manipulative domain in you know attributed to another actor or something um that can be blocked or taken down And then there are certain types of behaviors where we say this dissemination pattern is inauthentic. It's artificially amplified. There's automation involved. There's coordination involved. When those things can be tied back to an outsider or someone pretending to be something they're not, then there's a bright line policy around taking them down. If those same claims were made or put out by an American, that's freedom of expression That's expressing a political point of view. And so the question for platforms has been, how do we come up with viewpoint agnostic ways of assessing manipulation? And that's where you get at things like, um, even if you're an American, if you're using a lot of bots or fake accounts or fake identities or fake pages, fake websites, um, if that's discovered, that comes down again, uh, not necessarily under coordinated inauthentic behavior, but there are ways in which Uh, A lot of the automated activity is very akin to spam, you know, these sorts of other frameworks that can be used to look at at particular types of behaviors. But the platforms don't want to be seen as putting their thumb on the scale in a partisan sense uh, during an election either. And so one of the real challenges is when you're assessing these operations, uh, ensuring that there is some sort of line or some sort of policy line that Mm -hmm. you can point to. And that's just much more nebulous um, when there's no clearly manipulative foreign actor who's been involved. It becomes much more of an ad hoc, um, you know, building the policy as the plane is flying, so to speak, kind of um
0: wow.
1: experience.
0: That's fascinating. Um Renee, thank you so much for for this wonderful conversation. I mean, just fascinating stuff. And thank you for your work uh, ultimately. Um, Thanks so much for joining us on The Dive. Please subscribe to get the latest episodes.